continue tonight is something that I, I felt burdened to speak on last week and um, only made it partially through the notes that I had for last week. And if you were not here, that's that's okay. Um, uh, we're going to, in fact, uh, going to use something tonight, uh, a video towards the beginning here that will summarize a little bit of what we spoke on last last week. Uh, I'm speaking on this subject of suffering. Last week we looked at this. It's something that's common to all of us. Though people, they experience it to varying degrees, uh, no one really escapes suffering entirely, and uh, it's something that exists in our world. It's something that no matter if you are, are good or if you are evil, it, no, no matter if you're, uh, you love God or you despise God, suffering will still come and, and pay you a visit. And we looked into the example of Job last week, and tonight... It's, it's what we're going to start with. And although you know what I, there was something that I, I, I failed to do. I, I meant to bring this up in our time for prayer. And I want to pause just a minute. If we could just, uh, I do want to take a little bit of time uh, just to pray for a community that is suffering this week. Community that I don't know that any of us know anybody there. Probably not. But uh, after... That horrible, tragic shooting that took place yesterday at, at Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Just something that is unimaginable, um, unexplainable. Why such, such a tragedy would happen, would take place. And there's a, a whole community of, of people and even not just that community, it extends beyond that. In fact, I was today, I went to uh, my kids' elementary. They had their talent show that was going on in the year festivities and, and just noticing the uh, increased police presence that was even there today. And I'm thankful for it. But, but that's, that's that fear that, that continues on. It, it extends beyond just that community. But I wonder if we could just... Just spend some time here right now. Could we, would you mind just standing, standing back up again? And let's just take this community to the Lord in prayer right now. Amen. In Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, God, I pray for those who have lost, God, in this, this senseless uh, act, God. Lord, those who have lost their children, Lord, those who have lost even, even a mother and a father, Lord, even those, God, those adults who have, who, uh, their lives were taken, Lord, and these children whose lives were taken in this, this, uh, act of violence, Lord, I pray that you would just help these families, God, help this community right now. God, as they are searching, God, for, um, uh, for, for what the future looks like. God, as they are searching, God, for, uh, peace in the midst of this tragedy. Lord, I pray that you would just come and that you would just help them through this right now. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray, God, that we would find your love, God, that we would see. Lord Jesus, there's a, a deeper and, and, and uh, long, uh, longing for you, God. I pray that, that we would long, long, God, to be in your presence, God, above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. 
Please just continue to pray for that community. And you can be seated here tonight. I, I meant to include them in our prayers earlier. Amen. As I was mentioning the uh, in this subject of suffering, we, we began to look last week at this example that uh, comes to us, probably the most thorough examination of suffering that's, that's brought to us in the Bible. It comes in the, the book of Job. And there is a, a video, and it's... Um, it's a little bit of a lengthy video, but I, I feel like it's worth sharing tonight. And it comes to us from the team over at uh, the Bible Project. And um, I don't think that they get uh, everything right in their videos, but I do like their, uh, their synopsis uh, videos that they have of, of these different books of the Bible. And so I want to just, if we could, if we can get that video ready here tonight, I do want to just uh, begin tonight with that is just kind of our foundation into this continued study. It's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite, and the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. 
First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now, it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now, he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just, and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of. Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu, and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. 
Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth, or the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place, and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours, it's extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God, and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth all restored, not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God, and that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friend's, 
or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. That is about as quick and as thorough of a um, synopsis of the book of Job. Uh, and so I, I just found that very helpful in, the, in the, seeing that video uh, depicting what the message of Job is all about. And I love how the narrator ends that video with this statement saying that the book of Job doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Although that's a question that many of us have, many people have, is, you know, why, why do things happen? Why, why is suffering here? Why is it present? Even if you're good, we see scripture that talks about the goodness of God and how uh, God rewards those who uh, diligently seek him and those who would um, be in covenant with him, that God rewards us with goodness. And all of that is very true. But yet bad things still happen to good people. And he continues to say, he says, rather it, it invites us, the book, it invites us to trust God's wisdom. And when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out all of the reasons why, uh, what, what is causing that suffering, like Job's friends were trying to do, or like Job just trying to accuse God based on what limited evidence we have of God's injustice, instead of doing that, this is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually does care about us and that he knows what he's doing. It's about trust. Trust. Now, trust is, I I would say, it's the deepest essence of our faith in God. Do you trust God? That's, it's an integral question that it must be answered when you are assessing your faith. Do you trust God with everything? Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 3, Verse 5 and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all thine hearts. Lean not to thine own understanding. In all of thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Now that's easier said than done. To trust God is is not to trust yourself. To trust in, in, in your own wisdom. Okay, To trust God is... To not trust the wisdom of others. To trust God is means that you're not that trusting uh, really in anything else. You're trusting in God. You can trust His Word, the Word of God. Now, when I think of trust, really, there's one there's one word that it comes to mind for me, and it is this word relinquish. To trust God is. To relinquish everything into God's care. It's a voluntary surrender of, of everything that you may have. 
To relinquish something is means somebody's not taking it away from you. No, it's it's a voluntary surrender. You're surrendering this. You're you're trusting God in everything, not uh, not out of um, Him making you trust, but out of us understanding who God is and believing in Him. This relinquishing kind of mentality it's it's somewhat foreign to us. I think all of humanity really it's it's foreign to us especially within our society in particular because our society really promotes the opposite of this we are encouraged to express your ourselves we are encouraged to do our own thing we are encouraged to to celebrate who we are you know there aren't a lot of relinquished type of people that are around because now, if we look through Scripture, we can see many people who they fully trusted God. They relinquished their lives into the hands of God. And it may look like that slave who was sold as a young boy and uh, in, in a foreign country, and he still trusted God through the ups and the downs, eventually becoming second in command in Egypt. He relinquished his life over into the hands of God. Maybe it looks like Moses, who his own life was uh, one that he had 40 years where he was living in obscurity. He was watching another man's sheep. He was sleeping in the desert, but all the while trusting God's plan. And, and God, he did, or he, he was preparing him for what was to come next. Maybe it looks like that mangled disciple who's laying at the bottom of the rocks. His name is Stephen being the first martyr, and he would not back away from uh, from this message that Jesus Christ is Lord. He relinquished his own life. He relinquished everything to God, trusting God, and it cost him his life, but he relinquished his life to God. Or maybe it looks like Paul, who he was a very polished, educated Jew, but he turned his life over to Jesus. And after many years of preaching and out uh, starting churches throughout all of Asia, he looks back and he's, he's writing a letter later on in his life. And he's looking back over his countless tests and trials that he went through and uh, nearly losing his life on several occasions. Yet he counted them all joy. Why? Because he trusted God. He had relinquished his life. He, he had let go of it. He, he understood that, that there are going to be sufferings and there are going to be hardships that I face. And, and you know what? I, I'm going to trust God through them. See, now all of these are, they're, they're good stories. They're good examples for us to pull from. And, and there's plenty more that we could pull from from scripture. But, but what about you? What does it mean for you? To fully trust God. What does it mean for you to relinquish your grip on life? What is it that, that you're clutching, clutching so tightly that you, you don't want to let go of it? You don't want to fully trust God with this area of your life? Is it, you know, if this thing were gone tomorrow, then perhaps it would cripple your trust in God. Is there anything? Is it money? Is it your job? Is it a friend or a relative? Is it maybe your possessions or 
your health, even it could be. Are there, is there, is there anything in your life that if it were ripped away from you, that, that your, your faith in God, your trust in God would diminish? I just want to invite you, if you haven't already relinquished those things, then go ahead and do it. Give it a try. It might not be comfortable to do it, but, but, there is no better way to live life than to relinquish everything to God, to trust God fully and, and not have your trust be in money, not have your trust be in your job, but to, to, to trust that God is going to take care of you no matter what, that even when my health fails, that I still trust you, God. I still trust that you are here with me and in my, I may not see, be seeing any improvement, but God, I still trust you. I may go through the sufferings in life and and there may not, you know, I may be praying and crying out for your help, but in seeing it not, you know, not seeing it come, but God, I still trust you. God, I still trust you. And and when you can still trust God in the midst of of not seeing these things, uh, you know, coming back and, and, and Job through his life, he, he never knew that he was going to receive the blessings of God at the end of his life. All he had seen was everything taken away. And really the, the point of that whole book was not that God restores everything to you. That was not the point of the book. It's, it, the, it was a blessing that God did that. But, but he, there are things that, that happen in our life and we sometimes try to make sense of it or we, we believe that, okay, God, uh, if, I, if I serve you enough or if I do enough good things, then you're going to restore it all to me. And I, I believe that God restores. I believe that God, he can do anything and, and he can make a way out of no way. But there's also sometimes where we just have to trust him, even though we see no, no reason for what we are going through. There's a, um, best-selling author and a, and a preacher. His name is Leonard Ravenhill. And he, he once said, made this statement. He said that the Christian has no ambitions to be jealous about. He has no reputation. And so he has nothing to fight about. He has no possessions and therefore nothing to worry about. He has no rights. So therefore he cannot suffer any wrong. What a blessed state. He is already dead, so no one can kill him. Now I know how that sounds. It's not the kind of billboard material that a church might put up and, you know, try to draw people in. But that statement is rooted in truth that we belong to God. I belong to God. It's not. These are not my possessions. These are not, these are not my, uh, it's not my reputation. It's not, it's nothing that I have done. That's, it's all because of God. Everything that I have is because of God. In fact, we ourselves belong to God. First Corinthians chapter six tells us, it says, what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. And notice this, it says, and ye are not your own 
For you were bought with a price. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. The price that was paid was a life that was hung up on a cross. It was the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through that really we owed that. I owed that. I should be the one that was up on the cross. I should be the one that would die for my own sins. I should be the one that would pay the penalty for my sins. But yet Jesus purchased me. He purchased uh, you know me. He bought me when he went up to a cross and and he hung there and he he suffered for me. We belong to God because he purchased us. But not only do we belong to God because He purchased us. He redeemed us through that. But he also created us in the very beginning. And when he created me in the very beginning, he did so with a very specific purpose in mind. The reason for our existence is for God to receive glory. I was created for God's glory. We see this in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. It tells us that even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. That God created you so that he may receive glory. That also, God, God, he set you on a path And he has a will for your life so that he may receive glory. When he created you and and he set you on the path that that you you would live, he, he did that understanding that there would be tests and trials and suffering and pain along the way. And through it all, God will receive glory. The life of Stephen, it was lived and I'm, I'm sure... He, uh, you know, had many, he impacted many people during his life, but in his suffering at the end of his life, who you may think, well, you know, why would somebody so good have to suffer that way at the end of his life and his life being taken from him? But, but yet the church, it exploded because of the death of Stephen. We see God used his death to, to really uh, allow the gospel to be spread all throughout because you, you have this, um, you have this, this thing, these, uh, persecutions that are happening there in Jerusalem. They begin to, to even amplify beyond that and they finally begin to get outside of Jerusalem and do what God had called them to do. And we see God get glory even through the suffering and the death of a man named Stephen. Revelation 4, uh, verse 11, tells us again that it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. This includes you and me. Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created for God's glory. We were created for God's pleasure. Now tonight, as we're looking at this subject of suffering, are we? Am I hinting to the fact that God has pleasure in our suffering? And I, I 
I am not. I don't believe that God pleasures in our suffering, but I do believe that we can trust God through our suffering because it tells us that God, he sees the bigger picture. That when we can't make sense of the bigger picture, we can still trust that God sees the bigger picture. It's not in the sense that that we get lost in the bigger picture. It's not that God is so zoomed out and so distant that here we are just lost in all of this. No, God, he sees you and you are valuable to God. In fact, it tells us in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 29 through 31, it says, Jesus asking these questions here. He says, what is the price of two sparrows? Is it not one copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. The very hairs on your head, they are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. God, he cares for the sparrow. God, it, it, there's, it, there's other scriptures that talk about how, how he clothes the, uh, the lilies of the valley and he, he, he makes things that are so beautiful, but yet even in how much he, he cares about those little aspects of nature, God, much more than that cares about you. And that you are valuable to God. So it's not that God is so distant and has the bigger picture in mind that you don't matter to God. Because you matter very much to God. But even when you can't make sense of things and you don't see all things working together for good to those who love God. You can still trust in Him. And you can still trust in the goodness of God. I believe that God is still good even when I don't see the goodness happening around me. I still trust that God knows what he's doing. I still trust that God is, is, is at this, there's a reason for what I'm going through and I don't even have to always know what the reason is. But God is good. Knowing and trusting that his goodness, or knowing and trusting in his goodness is it's not always dependent upon your happiness or your satisfaction. Because sometimes goodness is shown through pain and suffering. There's a purpose to the suffering. And I don't want to contend that we always know exactly what that purpose is, but I do believe that suffering can teach us some things. If we allow suffering to teach us, it, it, it will do so. First Peter chapter five, verse ten says, "But the grace, or but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you." There will be some suffering that. Will come your way. But that suffering can teach us. The first thing. That I would see that. Suffering teaches us. Is patience. I mean if you take the prophets. For example. The prophets of the Old Testament. Who many of them suffered. And, and we see the patience. Or, or Job. We've, we've looked at Job. And he it was not a quick turnaround for him. 
It was a long process, and he learned how to be patient. That God, sometimes there's afflictions that come, and, and we learn to wait on God. We learn uh, that, that God doesn't operate on our calendar or I, our, our timetable, but His will and His way will be revealed if we are patient and we continue to trust God. The Lord, He, he sometimes will chasten us when we become too busy with our own affairs. We see this uh, in, in the Old Testament at times that uh, God would chasten his people when they're, they're so busy with, uh, the, they're so wrapped up in their own um, own things that are going on and, and God would chasten them or cause some kind of suffering so that they would get their mind on God. He wants to be first place in our life. Now he's not going to, he's not going to make that happen, but God desires to be number one in our life. And through patience and through, through suffering, which produces patience, we learn to trust God. Suffering also tests our faith. It's in 1 Peter 1, 7. It says that the trial of your faith, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory. Uh, Suffering tests the caliber of your faith. During suffering, faith it's either going to gain, uh, your, your faith will, will increase or your faith will wane, it will decrease. And we use that faith through the midst of suffering and it grows, it increases. Our faith in God can, can increase as we see God sustain us through suffering. I believe that suffering, it's uh, at times, it's allowed by God in order that we be made perfect. So that we can be stab- established and strengthened and settled. That's scripture. It's First Peter 5.10 that tells us that through suffering, you would be made perfect. You would be made established in God. That your, your, your faith becomes tested. But through the testing, you, you, you prove that, that your faith in God is not just based on his blessings. And that's, that was the test that Satan was putting up against, against Job. He only loves you and he only serves you because you bless him, God. No, we saw that that wasn't the case. That even when the blessings go away, we still are in, in the suffering comes and it begins to test us. Do you still trust God? Do you still have faith in God? And through that, I say, God, I will, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going anywhere. God, I'm still going to trust you no matter if the blessings are there or if the suffering is there. I believe that another thing the suffering does is it trains us for service. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says that, it says, learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. That through suffering we, we can learn, learn things to pass on to others. That we can learn to, we can learn things through our own suffering that then we can help others with down the road. Now I don't, there's, there's times when you say, couldn't somebody else teach that to them? Perhaps, but God chose you. And I count it joy that God would 
allow me to teach somebody else and to serve him through through the experience of going through this so that I can be prepared when somebody else a little bit further down the road is wanting to know how how can I have faith in God when I see this happening and you say you know what I've been through something similar my my own self and I've seen and I know that God is faithful and don't don't lose don't lose heart. Don't, don't give up because it's going to, God, He is there with you all the time. And I can tell you that it's, you're going to be worse off not trusting God and, and walking away from God than you would be to continue to trust God through it. It's this testimony that we have. It's, it's, in, in fact, 1 Peter 4.16 says that if any man suffer as a Christian, then let him glorify God. If you suffer as a Christian, then let him glorify God. If we endure suffering patiently, then we, it's a testimony that we can have. We can show others that I have confidence in God. I have faith in him. The last, the last thing that, that I could see that we can learn from suffering is, is that through suffering, we join in with the suffering of Jesus Christ. That if we suffer, as 2 Timothy 2.10 says, that if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. That He suffered for us, we also will experience suffering, but then we also will reign with Him just as He is reigning now. He was victorious, and we also will be victorious one day when we continue to have faith and put our trust in Jesus Christ. That Christians who suffer, they can be confident that, that, that God is going to reward us with a crown, and that one day we can exchange all of this, all of this life for a crown one day. And oh, what a day that will be. Now, through the midst of the suffering, even when we are continuing to have faith in God and, and tr- putting our trust in God in the midst of it, there's still times where it gets a little dark and, and you wonder, you know, what can I do? How can I find God in this? I love, there's, there's some scriptures that we can turn to that, that give us hope of, of finding comfort in God in the midst of the pain, in the midst of trials. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, it tells us, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God is never going to leave you. God will never, ever leave you. He is with you. Don't be dismayed in the midst of it. You know the, the, the famous poem of the, the footprints in the sand? That when you look back and you thought that you were all alone, those aren't your footprints that are there. Those are the footprints of God who is carrying you through the test and the trial. John chapter 16, it says, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man taketh from you. That you continue to trust God. And, and as you continue to have put your trust in Him, even in the midst of your sorrow now, just know that your heart will rejoice with Him one day.
And that kind of joy, nobody can take away. Nobody, no man is able to take that away from you. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's nothing greater than you can do when it feels like the load is too heavy than to come into the presence of God. Get on your knees or lift up your hands wherever you're at and just begin to cry out to God. Say, God, I feel like it's too heavy for me right now. And so I'm just, I just need to be in your presence. God, I, I just need to give these things to you. I need to unload some things on you. And, and you can unload on a friend. You can unload uh, your, your burdens and cares upon them. And you can feel a little better. But there's nothing like unloading it on God. And to, to just spend some time with him. And as, as you unload the things, don't, don't worry. God, he, he can, he can take it. He's, he's not, you don't, you don't have to hold back. We see the, um, we see how, uh, how David and, and, and Job and some of these in the scriptures, how, how they pray to God. And sometimes it's, you know, they're unloading a lot there. They're being very honest with God. But, uh, and I'm not here to accuse you of anything, God, but I just need to unload my burdens on you sometimes and let you know how I really feel. And when you do that, God says, I see you. I know you. In fact, I've been there myself. And that's why I came. I came from heaven to earth all that time ago so that I could feel and experience the same things that you are experiencing right now. He's been there before. That's what's so great about this God that we serve, that He has put Himself in your place. He has experienced every emotion that you experience. God knows every thought that uh, that may come your way when you have doubt and you have all these things. God, He understands it because He's been there. He was, as Jesus Christ, He was just as much human as he was God. And he, is a, he has had every human experience that you may encounter yourself and all those emotions that you feel. And so when it feels all heavy and you feel the, the heaviness of everything, come into the presence of God and you begin just to tell him, God, this is how I'm feeling right now. And this is, this is, you know, the thoughts that are running through my mind. And, and just, just have a, a, a the time in your prayer closet where where it's just you and God, and don't get out of there until you feel that you're uh, that that He has taken that yoke from you, and He says, "My yoke is easy and my burden is light." That what I would ask of you is that you would just continue to trust me. That's His yoke and that's His burden. Continue to trust me. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to understand it all. Just trust me. These things, I'm sorry, in uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. That in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We know that in him, that he already has overcome. 
And in that, I have confidence that he is an overcomer, that he uh, has already given me the hope that I will also overcome through him who resides in me, that we can overcome the world, and that even in the midst of, uh, of the broken world, that we can be overcomers here, and one day we will overcome and meet him in heaven. Now, Here's where I want to finish this off tonight is, is what about when it's not us that's suffering, but we see somebody else within the body of Christ that's suffering? What about when you see someone else? First thing I would I see scripture that would instruct us to do is that we would be empathetic towards those who are suffering. Not just not just sympathetic. But be, be empathetic towards them. Be, have, have empathy. Be, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. Hmm. It's an interesting way that he would put that. He's, he's talking, he's writing this to the church, and he's reminding them that there are those at that moment that are in bonds, or they are imprisoned they're suffering at the moment and he says remember them as if you are bound up with them as if you are sharing their pain and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body that empathize with them if they are suffering share in their pain and it's not that you have to Get yourself into the, the same circumstance or, or try to, try to inflict that pain upon yourself in some way, but, but to come and alongside them and be there with them. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 28 and 29, it says, Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who's led astray? And I do not burn with anger. What is the role of the body of Christ for those who are suffering? It would be that we would come alongside those and to, to express our love and, and our, uh, it says in, in Ecclesiastes, to weep with those who are weeping, to, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to, to, to share in, in those, uh, share in the afflictions and share in the suffering with somebody else and that we would be attentive to it and that we would be there for them. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through five tells us uh, or instructs us to bear one another's burdens. It says, uh, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is our merciful father and he's the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Let's bear one another's burdens. Let's be there to help one another. And in James chapter 5, it gives us the instruction that it's, it's t- talking about confessing our faults one, one to another, but also it says, pray one for another. There is no 
greater thing that you could do than to pray for the pray for somebody else who is going through something. And I don't want to uh, to, to count that short. It says, "Pray also one for another that you may be healed." Because why? Because the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, with this tragedy that took place yesterday down in Texas, I, uh, as as I've seen uh, with many recent tragedies that as they happen, that uh, begins to trend uh, on, on Facebook and social media to, to pray for those those areas, and um, I've seen backlash somewhat uh, within the world that's talking about stop the prayers and let's see some action. And I understand what they're saying by that when they're saying it's, it's, it's more than just praying. Let's see some action. But here's the problem with that is that prayer does work. And stopping the prayers is not the answer. That the prayers that they, the, the prayer, uh, an effectual prayer, somebody who is fervently uh, praying to God and, and coming to God, that there is power in prayer. And, and I believe that the prayer is needed now more than ever. Action is certainly needed, but prayer in this day, in this hour is needed more than it's ever been needed. We need prayer. The church needs prayer. This world needs prayer. Our nation needs prayer. We need prayer in order to, to see the kingdom of God advance here on this, on this earth. The gospel, I believe, is, it, it needs to be released to every nation, tribe, and tongue, including in our cities, in our towns, and in your, in your community where you live. That the gospel needs to be presented, but it, it can only truly have an effect, or have the effect that it's, uh, you know, the most effect when it's accompanied with prayer. When we begin to pray, we are releasing the love of God. We are releasing the, 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 the hand of God into our communities by praying one for another. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe when, when somebody is going through something that, that you pray and, and, and sometimes and just becomes cliche or just something rolls off the tongue. Hey, I'm praying for you. But let's really pray for them, church. When you see something that somebody's going through, that's, let's really pray for them. And now, I understand it's, uh, I mean, we get such an influx of, of prayer requests through, through just the day and age technology and all of that that we live in. Uh, there's so many more connections and you under, you see all of these things that are happening that, that 20 years ago, you would have never been aware of all of these things. And so to carry the burdens of every single thing that's out there and to, uh, you know, to, to carry all of those, uh, effectively to God in prayer, it may not, 
Uh, it may not happen, but, but there are, there are things that God will lay on your heart and there are circumstances that when you can pray for them and there is, there is a, a, an individual that you see that's hurting or God places somebody in your mind that you know is going through something, reach out to them, begin to pray for them. Take it, take it as, as your responsibility that right now God is allowing you as, as the body of Christ to begin to minister to their needs. And take it to prayer. Let's begin to pray. In fact, right now, if we can, let's just all stand. We're going to come to a close here tonight. I believe that through suffering, we can truly even see God the brightest. That we understand that God is, is good in all ways. That the goodness of God is always present. Sometimes we may find it hard to find him in it, but I believe that through it, through trusting him, that we see God near us and we begin to see that he is carrying us through it. And through suffering, we get to know God in a very intimate, close way as we need to trust him just to get through the next day. If we could just all around this place, just lift up our hands. Amen. I just want to begin to pray right now for those needs that are in this place. Lord, I thank you, Jesus. God, that you have never left us and you never will. God, you have never forsaken us and you never will. God, there is, there is never a time in my life where I have to come searching for you, looking high and low. God, no, you are right there with me, God, through everything that I would go through. And though we may not always understand, God, I still trust you, God. I still know, God, that you are, you, you have me in your hands, God, and that, that I know, God, that you are not, are not trying to, to, to just drag me through this world. God so that I can come out all beat up and broken no God you see me as beautiful God and you want to get glory God through the things that I that I may face God so I pray Lord that you would teach me to acknowledge you in all things God I pray that you would help me God to come alongside those that are uh, that are with me, God, as they are they're facing trials and tests and, and suffering, God, that I could be your hands and your feet, God, that I as the church, as God, as the body of Christ would come together, God, and to begin to minister, Lord, as you who have called me to minister, Lord, I pray that you would help us today, Lord, to truly take up the burden of prayer, God, to truly take up the burden of the church, which is to come around, God, and to lift up one another's burdens, to be there for one another. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, God, that you have called, counted us worthy, God, to partake in your suffering at times, Lord, so that we, God, can come through the, come through the fire and come through the test and the trial, God, refined and know, God, that my, my, my faith and my trust, God, it is not just, Lord, built on a house of cards, but God, it's built on a firm foundation, God, where I know, God, that you are there. God, I know that you're there. God, help us, God, to be faithful in all things and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Amen. You can be